And on the back of your bulletin, where you see sermon notes, I know you love these sermon notes. Now, you're going to see on the back here, it's going to say, uh, exercise your legacy of significance. And what I want you to do is we're going to take a minute, take one minute to circle the, the three legacies of significance you'd most fancy. All right, so take a minute to circle the three legacies that you would most fancy to sort of leave at the end of your life, all right? And if you get done quick enough, maybe share them. Share the ones you circle with a neighbor. All right, we'll wind down on this illuminating exercise. I hope you share with a neighbor, someone nearby. If you, if you chose... Died alongside your spouse of 40 plus years. How many chose this one, by the way? Died alongside your spouse 40 plus years, lived courageously doing what you both loved, then you're very much like the Apostle Peter, who was arrested with his wife in the city of Rome, preaching the gospel, and eventually crucified for it. Um, so you're very much like the Apostle Peter. If, how many of you chose, lived and worked beyond the borders of where others dared to live? You live somewhere adventurously. Raise your hand, okay? Yeah, don't be ashamed. There's no, there's no right answer for this. You are then like the uh, Apostle Andrew, who was the first to go beyond the Roman borders to the Black Sea and share the gospel, the good news of Jesus, with the Scythians there. How many of you chose, you went to great lengths to assist and befriend people from every race and social class? That's the legacy you left. Very good. Yes, over here to the side. Very nice. You were very much like James, son of Zebedee, uh, who traveled as far west as he could go all the way to Spain to share Jesus with uh, the locals there, with uh, the uh, Jewish colonized there, as well as with uh, slaves there. So for people from every race and social class, as far away as he could get to Spain. How many of you chose you faithfully served other Christians where you were most needed? Raise your hand. Faithfully served Christians where you were most needed? Very good. Okay, I see a couple there in the back. You're very much like um, James, son of Alphaeus, who went back to one of the largest Christian centers in the world, a missionary hub of Antioch. If you remember in Acts, this is where missionaries were kind of first sent out. And he went back to this big Christian hub to faithfully serve here when he was asked. How about most supportive during a friend's darkest hour? You were at your most supportive during your friend's darkest hour. Very good. I see a couple of you over here. Very nice. Now, uh, you were like John, son of Zebedee, right? And this is biblical, right? The only apostle who was with Jesus at the crucifixion. When everyone else fled, John was there. He also took in Jesus' mother at her darkest hour, the death of her eldest son. He took uh, her in in his home at Ephesus. How many of you chose to raise a family to boldly live for Jesus? Okay, I see from you if you're here. Very good. Like, I like that because your son is Ryan. That's very important, yes. Boldly live for Jesus. Uh, you're very much then like Philip. Yeah, very good. Philip, uh, who was stopped in Caesarea for 20 years to, with his wife, raised four daughters who grew up actually to be prophetesses. They had the gift of prophecies. and So they, they actually boldly spoke about Jesus and his truth to others. And then when they were of age... They actually picked up and went east, the eastern part of Asia, to be a missionary family, which is pretty neat as well. So, Philip, very good. How many of you learn many languages to extend the lives of as many people as possible? You like to learn languages. Any of you out there? Uh, Bartholomew uh, communicated and translated the gospel into many languages. 
So you might extend the lives of many people, right? Internal life. Very good. Uh, willing to risk everything for the cause of a friend. Who's out there? Anyone? Anyone? Yes, yes. Very good. I see that over there. That's very much like uh, Thomas, right? Who in John 11 was the first apostle willing to go back to Jerusalem where death was imminent, where murder was imminent. And he says, Jesus, we're going to go there even to die with you. How about uh, walking away from a life of grotesque wealth to use your talents for God? Anyone here? You live in Grand Cayman? Yeah, very few. Interesting, yes. Mm. Right, Matthew. Matthew. Uh, (laughs) I wasn't planning on saying that, but I guess it's true. So uh, he was a tax collector. Uh, He was a tax collector, but he was later in his life, not only did he give that up to follow Jesus, later in his life known for his austere lifestyle, for his discipline and simplicity with which he lived his life. Who started something that lasted for generations after you died? Who started something that would last for generations after you died? You left this long legacy. You're very much like Jude Thaddeus, who founded the church in Armenia, which was the first Christian nation and has a strong church to this day. You, you left a, a legacy that would last well beyond your lifetime. And finally, last, certainly not least, who here wanted their legacy to be they loved English people? Raise your hand. Okay, yes. Yes, thank you. <laughs> how did I, how did I guess, Kevin, our, our, our English elder? Now, some of you might be a little bit barmy that I chose that one. Uh, you might be a little cross with me and might want to have a row with me after the service through the fact that I chose that. But you would be very much like Simon the Zealot who was thought to be the first missionary to Britain. Very interesting. He loved English people, and then the English martyred him. So sad, yes. <laughs> Typical. Typical. <laughs> oh, very good. Uh, okay. What, what, why I want to bring this up is the apostles, who we've been tracking throughout the Gospel of Mark here, they figured out how to exert influence, how to have significance. And they figured out that it was, as we see here in these examples, relationally. With people they never expected to influence. Even like the English. Right? And never expected. But it wasn't always this way with the apostles. Turn with me, if you would, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 30 and read through verse 37. Mark, chapter 9. That's on page 721. If you want to use one of the Bibles, we have provided for you in these chair pockets or at the end of these aisles here on the side. Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. Um, We're going to see here two incidents that have altered how the disciples had been thinking up to this point about significance, their legacy, their influence in life. They would have to put their idea of significance to death, hence the cross of significance. Jesus and his apostles went on from there and passed through Galilee. And Jesus did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him, and they came to Capernaum, where he was in the house. Or sorry, when, when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. 
And he sat down and he called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone will be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and he put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. This is God's word. So, the apostles, they are informed for the second time about the suffering, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, and they don't get it still. And they're afraid to ask more about it. So, they don't get it. They don't get the serious plan that Jesus is talking about, this, this cross-rescue plan, this cross-rescue plan. They're afraid to ask about it. And then all of a sudden, as they begin to walk behind Jesus in this loosely formed line, they start to ask the question, who's going to be the greatest among us? That seems like, it, I hope that seemed like to you as it did to me, a just weird shift. Suffering, crucifixion, resurrection, we don't get it. Hey guys, who's going to be the greatest? It, it's a jarring shift. Why is this? How do we go from this plan to ranking the greatest among us? It's because the apostles are still consumed with their status. With their status. As we, again, as we saw last week, for the apostles, what's most precious to them at this point is being one of Jesus' twelve. Not necessarily being with Jesus per se, a relationship with Jesus per se, but being one of the in crowd, the twelve. And so they fear asking more because no one wants to be the guy, right, who's the wrong one, who's the rejected one, who's the rebuked one. Remember what happened to Peter in chapter 8? Rebuked because he said something that was kind of dumb. We don't want to be that guy. We like our status as one of the twelve. So the 12 don't get it, but they get it enough to know this plan is how Jesus is going to take his rightful place as king, as king of the universe and of our lives. So now the question is, where will we rank? Where are we going to rank behind him? Because status is so important as one of the 12, where are we going to rank one through 12? Some of you guys have enjoyed the NFL draft this week. Not too dissimilar. Where will we be? Where will we go? Doesn't always stay that way, though, does it? They go from ranking themselves to nearly every apostle loving humbly, influencing many, and then dying for the Jesus they believed in. So what changed there? Ranking each other? to giving their lives for Jesus Christ. Well, what changed is that, friends, they grasped the gospel. They would, we don't see it here, but they would grasp the good news about Jesus that we just read, that the Son of Man was delivered into the hands of men, and then they killed him. But, When he was killed, after three days, he would rise. And he did rise. This is the gospel that they grasped. 
and that changed everything for them, blew their mind about how to have significance and influence and impact and a legacy in this life. They grasped the gospel. These three days in human history remain the central teaching in the early church toward the end of a very long letter with lots of instructions about how to live. The Apostle Paul says to the church in Corinth, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried. And that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. In other words, He received received the teaching about Jesus' death and resurrection as First importance to him. The number one thing. And he passed it on as first importance. But first importance for what? This death. This burial. This resurrection. Why is it so important? First importance for what? For everything. For everything. Not only the rescue from eternal condemnation to eternal life, though certainly that, and most importantly that, but not just that, but for all of life, for decision-making in life, for societal upbuilding and justice in life. My friend Reinhold and I were talking about this the other day, that if, if societies are going to change, there has to be suffering on the part of individuals. There has to be a death on the part of individuals to say, I give up this preference in life, to serve my brother who has no ability to choose preferences, right? To believe that life will come out of that. See, the gospel impacts all of our lives. Decision-making, societal upbuilding, and justice. But certainly, relational impact and relational influence as well. And so, we see it's of first importance to Jesus. why Jesus did not want anyone to know he was passing through Galilee, because... It was of first importance to instruct the twelve, to imprint upon the twelve this gospel message, this plan. He needed them to get it, to have it absorbed into all their life. In fact, Luke's version of this second prediction of his cross and rescue plan in Luke 9.44 puts it so vividly. Jesus says, let these words sink into your ears. Don't you love that? Let these words sink into your ears that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, buried, and he'll rise again after three days. Jesus is saying, let let the gospel sink into your ears that it might be embedded into all every capillary, every vein, every part of your life, including relationships. And that's our message in a nutshell this morning. Grasp the gospel and you gain significance. When you grasp the gospel more and more in your life, and it gets in here, the more you will gain significance and impact and influence in the lives of others. So we're going to look at two things just this morning. One, to grasp the pattern of the gospel to gain relational significance. And then secondly, grasp the power of the gospel to Secure significance. So first the pattern, then the power of the gospel. Okay, so first, grasp the pattern of the gospel as we see Jesus lay out here 
to gain significance with others in relationships. I'm just going to walk you through, walk us through the pattern as Jesus himself lays it out. So first he starts with, the Son of Man is going to be delivered. This is known to people who like New Testament grammar. Raise your hand if you're out there. New Testament grammar. Whoop, whoop. As the divine passive. And that's kind of self-explanatory. To passive, to receive. The Father is orchestrating a plan over which the Son gets no say. Gets no consultation. Is permitted no preferences. And Jesus just passively submits to a plan not his. Son of Man is going to be delivered. But from this plan, he will exert the deepest and widest relational significance ever known in human history. Jesus immediately relates this passive plan to disciples like us. And so he took a child and put a child in the midst of them. It says in verse 36. So the question for us is who has Jesus who has Jesus put in my midst? You're with other adults. Some good friends maybe on the beach, you're with some prospective Christians you really want to share the good news with, or maybe you're just reunited with family you haven't seen in a while, and children walk into the conversation. What's going to happen? What's your first response? Ignore them, right? We love kids. This doesn't mean we don't love children, but the children walk in, you're having a good conversation, you're gabbing it up, right? Kids, we ignore. Unless, of course, they're well-behaved, number one, well-behaved, a.k.a. they're young girls, right? They're little girls because little girls are compliant for the most part, all right? They're eager to please all the adults around them, as, as, as the many smogs in the church here know. I just learned about this word smog, which is smug mother of girls. Um, mothers of girls know that their little girls are so, they're so obedient. They have tea. They ask you how you're doing, sort of thing, right? Now, that's going to be a problem. That's, that's an ominous problem for later, when they behave out of an eagerness to please and out of compliancy, because legalism becomes very prominent for older girls wanting to please out of duty. That's another story. All right. It's not a parenting seminar. All right. So first, you, you might pay attention if they're well-behaved. You might pay attention to them if they're annoying you to the point where you must either pay attention to them or hand them an iPad, or you're their grandparents. These are the reasons you pay attention to children in these scenarios. All right. So I love my children. Again, love my two boys. But it was after bedtime this past Thursday night. Uh, I just got off the phone with one adult. I think it was Jeremy Strickland. And uh, I was going to spend time with another, Katie, my wife. When Mason, our oldest, wakes up, says, Dad, uh, Dad, I can't sleep. I said, well, buddy, you know, your younger brother told me that last night he counted to 5,000. So why don't you beat him? Can't you beat that record? You're older than him. Come on. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> no, I'm not saying you should always use this technique. But. but, you know, sometimes if you're going to have adult relationships, you've got to ignore children sometimes. 
even more significantly in first century Palestine, where children were ignored until they became economically useful. If you can't pick figs, you know, if you can't plow with an ox, you know, go play with this piece of rope. (laughs) Now, Jesus' point isn't about, though, guys, children per se. It can be about children, but not children per se. Children, though, as the most supreme example of persons to whom you wouldn't plan to be significant. People you wouldn't plan to invest in, to disciple. Jesus is saying, the unexpected, the sometimes annoying, the often unuseful who simply show up into your life. And our strategy to these are typically to flee from their midst. How can we most quickly get away from them? But Jesus says to passively receive them in his name. Again, that passive idea, receive them in Jesus' name. Let them come. Let them be in your life. God has put such in your midst. The central question is, who has Jesus put in your midst? Who has Jesus put in your midst? You don't get to choose who. Just as Jesus didn't. You don't get to choose who. Even the, you know that Jesus even went to the mountaintop to pray about his disciples, who they would be. You don't get to choose who to disciple, to invest in, to have significance upon. I can tell you people that God has put in my midst to invest in a disciple would never have been the people I would have chosen in my life. I'm going to just give you a few examples. While I, was using, working, um, I was in university, but working with high schoolers, I went to all the basketball games thinking, I'm going to, I'm going to disciple an athlete. But God put in my midst a really, really hilarious, homely guy who liked to listen to uh, comedy CDs as a teenager. Unusual. <laughs> and then a 17-year-old mechanic who worked at Meineke. All right, both of whom dated the same girl at different times in a young life club. Next time, I did get an athlete in my next destination, but I also got a nemesis in my life. One guy who made it his job to terrorize a new youth pastor who was me. And he began to imprint his influence on me, um, first by using, Sam used his Ginsu knife-like elbows to swing around with me in the lane playing basketball, all right, intentionally getting me in the elbow one time and taking a chunk, a permanent chunk out of my chin. You can still see to this day. But he would go on to be someone whom I would disciple, who would go on trips with me to the local community college to share the gospel with strangers. He would let me into his home, which was often difficult and dysfunctional. And be a presence there in his life. Not who I would have chosen. And then I will tell you about Steve. Steve was the most intelligent, hilarious, and initially immature adult who ever signed up to disciple youth. <laughs> I love this guy, but at first I did not. All right, I, this guy never met a leader's meeting or a prayer time that he could not interrupt with a joke, often inappropriate. It would just get me, I mean, turn up red in the face. Right? I had to bite my tongue. After a few loving confrontations and I thought patient teaching that I thought went completely unheeded, he now disciples scores of both young and older men, leading a community group, a deacon in his church. And who has taught me, has shown me, man, you know, this had influence on me. You don't get to choose who. You don't get to choose who. The second thing we see Jesus say here is about his gospel message, into the, into the hands of men, they will kill the Son of Man. 
Jesus' great, 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 great grandfather, David. King David committed two related sins of passion. And he was given by God an option for punishment. Three days of people dying from providential pestilence. Or three months of an army, foreign army, pursuing his army. Alright, so, three days, divine causing of death. Three months, okay, of armies pursuing his army. You know what he would have chosen? The great general, war general, King David. He chose the divine pestilence. Three days of divine pestilence. Even though he knew how to outrun and outfox and outflank plenty of armies, he did so in his day, his reasoning was this, let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into the hands of men. 2 Samuel twenty four fourteen. Don't let me fall into the hands of men. He knew the unspeakable things the hands of men could do to him. The hands into which Jesus fell were utterly self-interested. Utterly using of Jesus until he was spent completely. Until he died. For our purposes and and, into life today, is there any more self-interested using stage of life than that of a child? Right? A child. Other than those rare moments, they have absolutely no threshold to know when they've utterly spent you as a parent or as a grandparent or as an aunt or as an uncle. They have no threshold. And so, can't you see mommy's tired? Is like one of the ultimate throwaway lines in history. Can't you see mommy's tired? Kids are like, what? (laughs) No, I do not. I will continue to bother. In fact, the fact that you told me that, I will bother you more. I will press in more to get what I want, to get that pack of Fun Dip or Twizzlers that I see over there. (sighs) They don't see. They never do. They're takers. I love them, but they're takers. By employing the example of children, Jesus is saying, pay no regard to who will demand the least from you, but to who can use you. Who can use you? Who can spend what you can give them? Who can spend what you can give them? Right? I love what one of the great Christians of all time, one of, the, one of my heroes, Augustine, Augustine of Hippo, when he said in the city of God, he said that a church's leaders, he said bishops, the church's leaders are significant only in their usefulness to others. Their usefulness. And he lived this out. People of his day didn't know him as St. Augustine or the Bishop of Hippo. They knew him as the guy who stayed behind when the vandals sacked his city, who thought, I could be most useful ministering to the people here if I just stay and give my own life for them instead of fleeing with all the other wealthy people. Central question here is, how might I be most useful to the one who wishes to use me? To the one who who has use for me, how can I be useful? It's not always, it doesn't always look the same. You might help a person learn how to deal with conflict in their life. You might help a person learn how to self-sacrificially lead and love their wife. To honor, respect their husband. Right? It might be to help pray through and make good choices. Just to learn how to be sociable with other people. There's some people that just need social skills. 
to make a budget, to be hospitable, to learn how to be hospitable, make others comfortable. I know someone who's helped people, helps people cut flowers and arrange flowers to make their home feel more hospitable for others. How to pray, help teach someone how to understand and apply God's word. It might look different for different people. How can I be most useful? For my friend Sam, he went on to use his gift of exhortation to mentor other young men who have absent fathers. Other young men who have absent fathers. God brought such into his midst and he mentored them. For my friend Steve, he helped mentor men on ideas how to continue to date their wives even after they're married, to love them well, and how to financially plan for the future. He was good at both, so he helped people in that way. When Jesus said, anyone wanting to be first must be the servant of all, you know, he was using a very ordinary word here, servanthood. Very ordinary word to refer to those who wait on tables. Those who wait tables. Like a waiter, don't be afraid to ask the question to one whom Jesus brings in your midst, how can I be of service to you? How can I be of service to you? Okay, the next thing Jesus says here, after three days, the Son of Man will rise from the dead. Jesus gave all of himself to his Father's plan, to the ones in his midst who killed him. He gave himself because he trusted in his Father's redemptive and life-giving power and plan to raise him from death. He just totally trusted that out of death, the Father can bring life. The eternally existing son, dead, had to completely trust the father to bring life. So at this point, when we talk about people who might use us, who might be more using people, people we might not expect in our midst, you'd hope I mentioned things like boundaries, right? Things like limits in response to your not-your-choice users who God brings in your midst, but... Jesus' hope lied in neither of those things, but in God's power to bring life from death. That's what Jesus hoped in. That's what Jesus trusted in. Life from death. Not boundaries, not limits. Not, I don't really like this person. I want to be with this person. I'm going to strategize my life in a different way. Central question is, am I trusting in any other exit strategy other than Jesus' exit strategy? Life from death. We have our own strategy to get out of certain relationships. You know the ones I'm talking about. The ones that this person keeps coming across in your life. And when you just want to get out, Jesus' strategy was give yourself. Give yourself. And I will provide the life. If you notice in the New Testament letters, the Apostle Paul will make these little passing comments that he's committed to trusting in Jesus' strategy. So for instance, Romans 8.36, he says, As it's written, for your sake we were being killed all the day long. 2 Corinthians 4.12, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. You see that? I'm willing to give of myself so that you might have life. When you give yourself over to the person Jesus brings in your midst, there's no guarantee of a thank you. There's no promise of your spouse or your pastor recognize what you're doing in terms of being self-sacrificial. There's only the promise from Jesus when there's a genuine spending of life for the sake of the gospel, life will rise. Life will rise. Provision of the most unusual kind. The warmth, maybe, of his nearness. 
It might be a friendship you didn't expect that comes along to support you in this relationship. It might be the greatest and ultimate life, the salvation of the person whom you're investing in, who you're giving yourself to. Now, what happens when we climb back though, onto the throne of our own hearts, to the default of putting ourselves in our own needs, number one. What happens when we begin to want, hey, who's investing in me? Huh? When we begin to show favoritism and ignoring those who Jesus has clearly brought in our midst, what do we do then? Notice, if you will, Jesus overhears his pupils, his apostles who walk in a loose line behind him, but he waits until they're rested and alone in the familiar Capernaum home of Simon Peter before he confronts them. He doesn't humiliate them along the road or call them out in the moment. He waits to privately confront them. He does, right? What were you talking about? And their silence is deafening. They know, ooh, we put ourselves number one. You ever recognize that Jesus has a way of humbling us without humiliating us? Exalting us without flattering us? He's got a great way of doing that. How does he do that? How does he restore us? Through the gospel. Through the gospel. Which leads to the second and shorter point here. We have to grasp the power of the gospel to secure significance. You know, this past week, when I first read here of Jesus' second prediction of his cross and rescue plan, I wrote in my journal, I'm the child who whines. I'm the child who whines when he sees others get the better toy. I'm the child who worries if his dad still loves him, needing to be reassured. I'm the child who thinks he knows best, so I'll be dang sure dad doesn't get in the way of what I'm doing. I'm the child who's interrupting others to make sure my emotional needs are met and my preferences went out. That's me. Jesus risked being delivered over to people like me so he could forever receive people like me and people like you. So I might be forever significant to him and forever be great to him. In other words, the gospel must not just be history, but must become my history. I am the child who whines. You believe that? Yes, you might, you might say, yes, I know, Ryan, you're the child who whines. I get that. No, I mean for you. Who demands, who uses, who crawls back into the throne of his own hearts to take number one position. But because of Jesus' cross and rescue plan, I'm also the child he takes up into his arms. And that's good news, isn't it? I just want to share with you this, this last story. Florence Nightingale is the, or the mother of modern nursing. We're talking about Mother's Day this morning. She's the mother of modern nursing. She's most recognized for caring for soldiers in the mid-19th century Crimean War. Those soldiers were ten times more likely and did ten times more die from disease than they did from actual warfare. And she earned the nickname the Lady with the Lamp because after all the medical officers went to bed for the evening, you could see her slender figure walking through the aisles, caring for the sick with just a candle, sometimes a, a washcloth, some food. Nightingale grew up affluent and well-educated. She discovered her greatest worth when she found out that Jesus had died the death that she deserved 
and was raised to life to forever forgive her and to receive her into a relationship with him. And given her high bred birth in Florence, noble upbringing in a small English village of Embley, and the fact her parents tried to say, don't go into nursing, very unlikely that she would give herself to the needy through this kind of care. And Nightingale admitted she had nights where she longed for romantic companionship and mornings she wished for what she called self-comforts. All right? Here's how she said she carried on. Nay, it strikes me that what I require every day lies between these two. Man saying to God as Samuel did, Lo, here am I, and God saying to man as Christ did in the storm, Lo, it is I, be not afraid. God says to man in suffering, in misery, in degradation, in anxiety, in imbecility, in loss of the bitterest kind, and in sin, most of all sin, Lo, it is I, be not afraid. This is the eternal passion of God. And man must respond to him. Lo, here am I to work at all these things. And so the Bible, she says, puts into four words of one syllable, four words of one syllable, where the whole sermons cannot say so well. The whole of religion is God's, lo, it is I, and man's, here am I, Lord, use me. Right? And that's it right there. This was her gospel meditation. Every day grasping, Jesus is here. And responding to the gospel, here am I. Use me among the least and the least expected that you bring into my midst. Because Jesus always received her, lo, it is I. She could give herself to whomever Jesus brought her way. Here am I without fear of rejection, without fear of failure, fear of a life without significance among society's most important. Who is one such in your midst? You know God is saying, give yourself to them. Here's a hint. It's not the person you would choose. Then again, if you were in the Son of God's place, choosing to whom you would give yourself, would you choose you? But he did. Let's pray. You, Jesus, delivered yourself over to hands like ours. Hands that gripe, that whine, that insist on being first, that use you, that take advantage of you and the gifts you've given us, that even use others. And yet you gave yourself to such like us, children, You trusted yourself to the Father that that he would raise up your life. So Jesus, we just ask simply that you would empower us to do likewise. To give ourselves to such as children. Those who might use us, who might just think of themselves. Who might have none of our interests in mind. But we can trust and give ourselves over to them because we know that you will bring life out of it, that you will bring life out of the relationship, impact, influence, life from it, because that is your gospel. We trust ourselves to it this morning, in Jesus' name.
Amen.